A personal note before we begin. Today's episode is dedicated to my sister, Lindani. I was compelled to dedicate this to her for personal reasons. One of those was that she's an accomplished professional, an immensely caring individual, and an independent woman. If there's a mold out there for the perfect person, the perfect woman, she's damn close. One day I'll interview her for this show, and it hopefully won't be awkward to share a sibling's chat with the world. With that said, Linda is not too dissimilar from a lot of women out there. Pillars of our community, they are leaders, they are mentors, they are companions, daughters, mothers, and sisters. Fittingly, this episode is being released on March 8th, International Women's Day. And this one is for you, Lynn. It's time. Doors opening. Going up. It's so interesting because it reminds me of the kind of two factors of change. Um, or of the status quo, depending on your perspective. This idea that there's surface change and there's systemic change. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the times uh, we will, as a society, as companies, as groups, we will jump towards the surface change because you see things um, in the short term flipping, um, but in the long term and in the the deeper sense, nothing has changed. And it really reminds me about um, something that I read just today about financing. Um, Black women in financing for their small businesses. There are barriers to them getting financing. Mm -hmm. This was something that has been researched is that when uh, there's an opportunity for um, often a male investor to give money to a man or a woman, same pitch, Mm -hmm. they'd give to a man because they resonate more, but it's the same pitch. So that's one layer of, of discrimination that's playing out. Then another layer, when it's a woman of color or a black woman, a racialized woman, that there's an additional barrier. They will be less likely to get the funding. But even if you change that person who's financing, the the entrepreneur who's giving you money, that the, the barriers still hold true because the system of the ways that this is a good investment, quote unquote, and this is a bad investment, the way that happens is still the same. It's pervasive. It's so pervasive. You haven't changed the way financing is done. Mm -hmm. And therefore, racialized women still get less financing than white women. And Mm -hmm. then all women get less than men. So I think it's really uh, an important term because we're speaking to the idea of needing to have a deeper change that has nothing to do with individuals, that has very little to do with who is in a particular role and the way work and financing and capitalism, even you would say that, mm-hmm. is set up. Going up. There's companies that are shifting and changing. And now I think what's happening is you see a lot of women entrepreneurs coming in and 
starting it their way yeah. right from the get-go and they're at the helm and they're making things happen so the idea of these traditional businesses i also think are changing mm-hmm. so i think the shift that could ha- that will happen for women is um i feel that we're, we're we're changing the way that we work progressing at such an exponential rate there are these companies that are um you know that are evolving with technology and they're looking at different way at, at different ways of working and they're not necessarily um you know, service-based, but they have a different business model. Um, and, and I think that there are more entrepreneurial women who are entering into that space that will lead themselves forward based on their own rules. Right. And um, so they'll, they'll effectively change the game. They're changing the game. Good morning. Good day. Or good evening, and welcome to 54 Lights. This show is meant to shed light on undertold stories out of Africa. Our vision is to introduce you to some extraordinary people doing incredible things, and to ultimately change the lens through which African and Africans are seen. My name is Kondwani Mwase, and today's episode is C54, Cliffs, Ceilings, and Crossings. For context, at the close of every show, I mentioned that the conversation continues. I did that because each podcast is a moment in time, a snapshot, and a narrow window into what's happening at a particular moment. And sometimes thoughts and feelings that come to light after hearing those conversations are rich and interesting. And so the Seed 54 series is meant to get your thoughts on a previously played episode to hear what you think after a cultural conversation has set in and marinated for a bit. I'd recommend you listen to these two relevant episodes. First, It's Gotta Be The Shoes, which featured Krista Inyarjukin. And then, The President's Club, Part 1, featuring Meryl Africa. Both episodes focus in on women in positions of leadership and are the jumping-off point for the following episode. What follows are perspectives on women in leadership, views on the glass ceiling and the glass cliff, two concepts that speak to challenges of gender equality, especially in the workplace. Spoiler alert, the guest list that follows is an impressive one. These leaders are at the peak of their respective industries and model executives inside and outside their domains. So, let's plant some seeds. Doors opening. First floor. 
your full name and the origins maybe of your name. Does it mean anything or, mm -hmm. you know, is there a story behind your name? That, okay, so there, there is. Okay. Okay, so Victoria Peltier. Mm -hmm. And my name has changed multiple times over my lifetime. Okay. So name and identity has become more than my name to identify myself. So I was born uh, Shannon Saxon. Okay. But I was adopted uh, when I was almost four. And I told my adoptive parents that because I had new parents, I thought I should have a new name. So uh, my... You said that early on. Yes, I was four. Wow. And so I had already taken my... Or I was in the process of taking my parents' new last name. and But I thought I needed a new first name as well. And so my mom uh, said, okay, well, I'll give you... A choice and she gave me a choice of three names so this will probably as i tell you the names give you my age away somewhat although i'm quite comfortable talking about my age also so born in the 70s 1976 and uh, so the choices were melody joy amber dawn or victoria although my nickname growing up was tori and i obviously chose victoria but Perhaps one, I think I knew at four, I should not choose those other two very stripper like names. Uh, but also because I loved Vicky from the love boat. Oh, even though I hate being called Vicky, her name was Victoria. And so there I became Victoria when I got married in my first marriage. I then took my, you know, my ex's last name. And so I became Victoria Amaral. So third name change in my life. And then um, when I got remarried, you know, I, I got remarried three years ago. I'm with my husband for six years. Uh, I, my brand, which is a big part of who I am as a leader, however, was Victoria Amaral. But um, my, unfortunately, my ex passed away and my husband has adopted my children. Wow. So as a very much symbolically, it was important for us for family unity. We became one and united by our last name. Wow. So I became Victoria Pelty. So um, I typically ask this of people um, and say, in relation to like your the, the parents and say, well, your parents chose this name for you. Do you think you've lived up to that choice? Yes. So in this case, do you think you've lived up to the choice that you made for yourself? Yes. So... I'll say I, I didn't know Victoria, Victorious, and what came with the name. I knew I liked Vicky from the Love Boat. I knew I liked Tori as a nickname growing up. But the what Victoria and being victorious means, if you I talked about my early years. Mm -hmm. So I was born to a drug-addicted teenage mother who beat me severely. Mm -hmm. And so the choice of name and whom I've chosen to be stems from that. I chose to be something very different than the roots I came from. Right. Uh, and actually my parents, although incredibly loving, very lower middle class provided for me. But I remember my mom saying to me at some point, Tori, you just need to be better than us. You need to do better than us. My mom was a secretary, my dad, a janitor. So for me, both in, you know, the nature and nurture I was determined to live up to what I now know is the name I chose for myself, you know, and to be victorious and to overcome, to be unstoppable. 
that's uh, that's a remarkable perspective and a remarkable story. We could probably spend a whole lot of time speaking just about your life journey, but I, I want to, you know, I'm kind of here in the context of work uh, and your career, but you know, sort of before I, I ask you about, you know, who are you uh, in terms of like from a professional standpoint, you have obviously uh, been very successful in your career. Is that something, is that an, uh, you know, it might not be perceived as that's a nature thing, but it, it is you, right? You have um, found a lot of self-determination and you've overcome a lot. Where does, where does that come from? I was not confident as a young child, you know, being abused and then later given up for adoption always caused me to feel insecure and not valued and question my worthiness. So work was a way for me, I could very much demonstrate my value by delivering, by performing. So for me, um, you know, it's been an evolution. Uh, you know, I am much more confident in who I am as an individual, and it's less about needing to prove that anymore, mm-hmm. um, purely from a work perspective. But that's where it started. So I started work at age 11, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. not just babysitting, yeah, uh, like but, you know, real jobs. work. Yeah. Uh, and ever since it was a, around, you know, proving my worth and my value to others, because I didn't feel it at a personal level, I could very much deliver it professionally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What do you do for for work? So, you know, I am, I'll say a lifelong corporate executive. And I say lifelong because my first executive role came at age 24. So close to 20 years now as an executive in a business to business environment. But I am the, um, you know, I'm a, you know, business transformational leader. Uh, I'm often the fix it girl, Mm -hmm. you know, who come, I've been through 18 mergers, acquisitions, joint best uh, ventures, divestitures, et cetera. You know, and that comes with significant change evolution and the need to transform the way in which we're doing business. Mm -hmm. So I'd be known for that. Mm -hmm. You think that there's a tie between your early life and dealing with a lot of change and, and doing that as a a sort of as a profession absolutely you've lived to deal with that yeah i i think actually one of the things i talk a lot about being comfortable in your discomfort when you look at career progression and to be successful and the fact that i've been and i've moved jobs every few years you know and seeing these different environments you know as me and being really comfortable with change you know never really home is where the heart is well think about that professionally as where, where I am at that point and being really comfortable kind of navigating in chaos Mm -hmm. is something I'm accustomed to. So it's probably a big part of what's made me successful is because I come from a place where I'm, I'm, I'm used to being uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. If, If I could ask you what one moment, whether it's professional or personal that gave you that comfort level, um, that gave you that confidence what would you say has been the most would have been the most pivotal moment that sort of made you turn the corner if if that's if that's appropriate to say that i we can probably talk about this a little bit later but i wore a mask for a long time and they a little bit of the fake it till you make it and so quite frankly it wasn't probably until my 30s where i finally felt like i could take a breath and didn't need to wear as much of the mask anymore because i started to realize um you know, I had had to change gears uh, and do a 180 at one point in terms of how I chose to lead. And when I did that, 
I had had the results for a long time, but all of a sudden I had great followership and teams, you know, that came with me, quite frankly, as I made transitions and changes to even places, to new yeah. companies. And, you know, it, I heard it, but now all of a sudden I could see it, I could believe it. And that for me was, you know, where a, a point where I could start to believe much more sort of in, in myself and who I was. And that's actually a, a, a part of the defining moment for me too, in terms of, you know, who I am today and particularly as a leader and who I want to be going forward. The, this whole notion of the uh, glass cliff and the um, glass ceiling. So you're, you're familiar with it. I had learned it only recently. Um, glass ceiling for sure. The, yeah. So, so glass ceiling is the more common one, obviously. Um, glass, cl uh, glass cliff is one that I heard on a podcast done by Malcolm Gladwell. And the idea there mm. is, or the concept there is that female executives are parachuted if they are given an opportunity or when they are, they are parachuted into dire situations. They're parachuted into situations of great volatility. Um, and I'm paraphrasing here and I'm, I'm getting it right, but in that they are actually almost predisposed to failure because it's sort of like, hey, the, the ship is sinking. Um, yeah, let's put a woman in there to check a box somewhere, but hey, go in there and now like this, the, the, the company is in crisis. Mm -hmm. So the reason I thought about that, you know, aside from the fact that this is what I wanted to talk to you about, but when you said fix it mergers, that sort of to me is, is the epitome of the glass cliff where you're brought into a situation where there's, there's trauma, there's a lot of change, there's a lot of volatility, and there's a lot of predisposition for a company perhaps to, to go the wrong way. Mm -hmm. So how, how have you in your career, well, number one, is that, is that been something that you think is a real thing? or a real concept and, or how have you been able to, to overcome? Like, how have you been able to march through all of these different circumstances? Uh, so I personally have not seen or experienced that a woman is put into a role set up to fail, um, to tick a box mm -hmm. uh, or them or, or an organization saying it's so bad. Why don't we just put yeah, or it's, it's like a last, last uh, effort to do something. So, Hey, you know, let's do this. But okay. uh, so I personally haven't seen or experienced that. Yeah. Uh, I usually have found organizations put someone into those role that is a known fixer, okay. you know, so I have been one of those individuals, you know, who will go into those roles um, or gets hired even net new into an organization or a role because of a history around that. Uh, what I, I see is, um, the setup to fail is less about being put into a fiery situation. It's more around, you know, putting it, you know, an individual, I will say into a role that hasn't fit the typical mold in the past, you know, so I quite frankly, and I share this, you know, openly, even within IBM, you know, I came in and very quickly I looked around and I said, I'm very different from my peers. And they said, yes, that is why we hired you. Now, I did say, are you ready for me? Uh, very quickly. And, you know, and so they're trying to pivot and make a big change in terms of the way we, you know, go forward. But I've seen in other organizations where they, you know, they say, okay, we're going to try something different, but then there's no cultural appetite to actually change the status quo. Right. So you've dropped an individual in who has accountability, but is not supported mm -hmm. and hasn't necessarily been given all the authority they need 
to ultimately be successful. That for me is definition of stress is within the workplace. Give, don't give me accountability unless you're going to give me the authority to do what I need to be ensure success. Right, 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 right. And so that's where I see, and maybe women come in with a often a different, um, not skill set, but you know perhaps higher EQ and might in some cases uh, and might want to have different conversations and people will sort of reel and come back. But those are the conversations that need to be had yeah. to be successful. And therefore they might end up failing because the organization and the rest of the leadership aren't ready it's for just it. culturally not yeah. there. Um, how do you, how do you advance that culture change? Do you, is it a matter of like, okay, you've come in, let's say you've got it at the leadership level, but how do you drive that mentality down to the rest of the organization? Have you, are there certain steps that you've taken in your career to, to make that a, a real pervasive part of a culture? Yeah, so I am, uh, Kim Scott, uh, Radical Candor. I've, and that's her, she's got a book now. Um, Cheryl Sandberg was her, one of her leaders and approached her with Radical Candor, which was giving her some very candid but tough, a tough message to deliver and for her to hear. Cheryl had done it, she said, from a place of care, uh, right? Wanting her to be succeed, uh, to succeed. So that that vernacular I've now embraced as my own, but the fact is that's how I've lived in, and operated for as long as I can remember. And so for me, that I I lead with that every day, all the way down. And I, you know, and I hope that everyone through the organization will see that because I think that's important. There's no meeting after the meeting. Like all cards on the table, right? So if we're going to be successful and we want to change the status quo, you know, we want to innovate, we need to fix what's broken, then we actually need to have those tough conversations. Uh, so for me, that's a big way in which I try and drive that all the way through. But that, that and, and with that also comes having, you know, the tough conversations around, if we're going to talk about glass ceiling, then let's talk about what diversity, diversity and inclusion. So not just women in the workplace, let's look more broadly at underrepresented individuals within the workplace. We need to actually have a conversation. We need to understand the data. We need to understand how we got there. We need to understand who's at the table around the table who has privilege and doesn't recognize it. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, so I say a lot, you know, I am still privileged. I'm, you know, might be a woman uh, that's underrepresented, but um, you know, I'm was born white. I was born in Canada. Mm -hmm. So for me, my role is to recognize that I am privileged in the workplace. Uh, but I also have significant responsibility that comes with that. That means tough conversations with a lot of my colleagues. Doors opening. Going up. Second floor. I found my way to Indigo's head office in Toronto to get some thoughts from a leader within that organization. She's been with Indigo for decades and is no stranger to the rigors of the corporate world. That she's a leader within an organization headed by an iconic female figure makes her perspective that much more salient. Here, in part, is our conversation. So I'm Andrea Lombardi. I have been in the retail space for over 25 years now. Okay. And so I've been, spent my career passionate about um, talking to customers, figuring out what their pain points are, 
and working with large teams to to bring those solutions to life. So you say you've been in the retail space for 25 years. Um, I'm assuming you didn't start as a as a leader no, in the retail I, space. I started as a barista in a second cup coffee shop. Okay, okay. What um, what is it about retail? Is that do you know when you were a barista that you were like I like this space or? Um, I, I, so being a barista, being that my first job, there was this feeling of independence and autonomy and this ability to have conversations with people about all sorts of different things. I think a barista is like the sober bartender. (laughs) And so you'd have people coming in and telling you their life story. And at 15, when you're still just learning who you are and what the world is, you're like, wow, there's a big world out there and people have such interesting stories. And that really appealed to me. And at that point, I decided that I wanted to open my own hotel or my own inn and be involved in this business of people. And so that was my 15-year-old dream of of having this experience, getting to know people in five-minute chunks and sometimes in, you know, the ones who would stay around for 45 minutes and hang out and talk. When did you then cross over into a leadership role? Pretty soon after. So I think I was probably 16 when they promoted me to night manager. And um, from there went to another coffee shop where I was an assistant manager and have worked a whole bunch of places um, uh, in leadership role from a pretty young age. Yeah, I was going to say that's 15, 16, or 16. That's, yeah. like, that's a long, that's a young age to be uh, to be in charge of people. Yeah. Um, so th- I'm sure there's there was a bit of a um, interesting challenges over the over the years. But maybe if we stick with the like the young mm-hmm. young 16 year old Andrea. What did you, did you feel that maybe um, like what were those challenges like? I'm not leading the witness. What what were those uh, challenges? So, sixteen year old like? Andrea was living on her own, mm-hmm. so had just left the the house. Complicated situation. So here I was, living on my own, needing to pay rent, and um, so you, you, I, I fell into that management role um, in in a bit of a happenstance of life. Okay. And um Do you have siblings? I have five siblings oh, wow. from the same parents and two step siblings. Oh wow. Great. So eight in total. Okay. Yeah. But you were not taking care of them. You were you were on your own. By sixteen I was on my own. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you've always had to kinda of take care of yourself, not always, but for a long time you've been taking yes. care of yourself. Yes. Um how is it then how was it then now having to quote unquote take care of other people from a work perspective you know so seeing a 16 year old being your boss and in some cases I had uh, team members who were in their 50s and 60s mm-hmm. um, they always looked at me like who is this kid and what is she here doing yeah. and now my style's always been collaborative I don't believe in a hierarchical system I didn't back then and it's not productive to say well I'm the boss you're going to do what I say and so I would just keep working with them and it was hard and it would take me you know a good three to six months to win somebody over for sure and all of my experience probably all the way up until I hit my mid-30s maybe Um, because there's this perception of you know pat her on the head and you know what's nice little girl Um, and so it did it did take time and you know in the beginning when you're young you're trying to prove yourself for your own self yeah. and also for outwardly. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and then when you get over that and you're like, no, I've got something to offer, it's hard to be patient. It's harder to be patient to wait those three to six months to get somebody to go, oh, yeah, you know, she's, she's bringing value. 
can you can you let me know when or if there was ever a time when the the fact that you were uh, a woman became quote unquote the challenge versus the young woman mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. like if at all no okay. and i think those two things go hand in hand i don't you know so one of my larger my first larger re, um leadership roles was with what was famous players back in the day yeah, and so nice. we were doing the expansion of theaters across eastern canada so ottawa quebec city montreal and i was part of that leadership team and I was part of the leadership team in the food and beverage side of things because mm-hmm. that's where my background was. And I was the only woman in my job, period, in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and the food service business naturally is quite male-oriented. Um, and the theater business actually was, and especially the, the part of it that was food and beverage. Got it. And so... Um, you know, I was called everything from little sister to, oh, it's so sweet that you have an opinion. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think, um, I think the difference in age is that it's just folks are bolder to say it when you're younger. Right. Um, but you still feel treated that way when you're older, Isn't if that okay. makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And it changes depending on what atmosphere you're in. Right. Um, but. Um, but it's still there. I've still experienced it. How do you react in those moments? You seem like so um, measured and intentional. Um, I'm assuming you must get fired up inside, or are you just always sort of even keel? No, I've got a fiery side, but you know, <laughs> I have I, ask you. <laughs> I have this philosophy to say, are they worth my energy, and what benefit I'm going to get from that, and do they deserve my passion or anger or? energy and so with colleagues that I trust and respect I've had really honest conversations of Mm -hmm. when you say that this is how Mm -hmm. I take that to be Mm -hmm. um it's tough because yes I've measured at the same time it's you know uh uh and I'm very very passionate about equality um in all ways um but you don't always get equality by screaming and yelling right Right. that's not always the, the best approach for sure for sure do you um, do you find you have a comfort level with with confrontation? I actually highly value confrontation, so okay. it's something that I think is really important. Okay. I think having real conversations matters, and right. I think when you give most people the opportunity to see a different side if they're willing to hear, and if you're willing to hear that side from their perspective, right. a lot accomplishes out of it. I think is accomplished from that. I think we generally spend too much time trying to be nice but nice doesn't get you anywhere if you're not telling somebody the truth it's actually not nice right i think for a woman to be in a leadership position she tends to have to be okay with not appeasing everybody Mm -hmm. and i think girls are trained from a young age to be good girls and so sometimes you have to not be a good girl and you know not wait to be asked before you say something and not wait to be told you know, it's okay. Girls are everything nice, sugar and spice, right? Or however that saying sure, goes. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that when you get to a leadership position, um, that's where the women I know and I know to be strong leaders are not nice. Mm-hmm. They're kind. Yeah. They're generous. That's two different things. Yeah. yeah. They're incredible people, but they're bold yeah. and they speak up and they say, hey, wait, let me finish. I'm still talking. And they stand up for themselves. Right. And so um, I think I think they've had to probably put twice the effort in maybe to break off what is the societal pressure of being a good girl. 
where is the place or is there a place for men in this conversation? It's essential. Okay. I think this conversation has to happen with everybody. It's about mm-hmm. equality. Um, yeah. I think the, the misnomer with feminism is it's not about it's the future have. is female. Yeah. It's the future is equality. And I think we have to be careful not to be exclusive. And it needs to be inclusive. And so when I have those conversations with the men or women in my life, I, I do a lot of interviews. And the only people who ask me this question how did I do in the interview? What do you think I'm missing for the job? Is women. I have never once been asked that by a man, and I have interviewed thousands of people. And almost every single woman asks me that question. I'd say 95%, mm. and not once for men. So how do we have this open dialogue so that we're all on the same page and all mm. on the same... I, 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 think it's, I think it's essential. To have yeah. everybody in that conversation. I do. Yeah. I, and I think most most men and women want to be progressive. Yeah, yeah. I actually feel goodwill from most. And they don't always get... That's right. They don't always get the chance to. Yeah. And that's that's a remarkable perspective. I think the the reason why I asked that question is I, I spoke to somebody else about gender and she had said that she wanted to create a space for women to talk. So it would it needed to be a, a safe space for women to talk, but as a secondary step to then open, quote-unquote, the tent, the room, to men to have that conversation. So her perspective was women first, then have men involved in it, but on the, on the whole, mm-hmm. uh, men be involved in that. But I didn't want to... I didn't want to put words in your mouth, mm-hmm. so I wanted to ask you that. Yeah, and that could be part of what of the environment that I'm lucky to be in, and I, I recognize it as lucky lucky to be in, is that we're probably already at that point. We're probably already at that point of supporting each other mm-hmm. um, and helping each other. And, you know, there are men in this world who have the same challenges, some um, for different reasons. For, and, right. and there's a lot of different reasons that come up. Uh, sexuality. Um, uh, different backgrounds, yeah. like yeah, race, whatever race, is, exactly, yeah, religion. Sure. Right. I mean, um, so I, there's there's a lot of commonality there that is worth unpacking for me. But again, I'm I'm in a bit of a privileged situation in a lot of different ways that we come to the table with that expectation sure. as part of where I where I come to work every day. Doors opening, going up, third floor. My name is Andrea Gunradge, and um, actually Andrea Trisha Jean Gunradge, it's the middle name in there too. Right. Um, at the Canadian Women's Foundation, I'm VP of Public Engagement, so I get to do a lot of stuff that I find fun, communications and getting people to understand this issue of gender equality and why it's so important and what it looks like and how complicated it can be, how many layers it is. Part of the problem of things like sexism and gender equality, like these barriers that we're talking about, is that we don't have language to put to them that we can actually understand. And I think sometimes the problem about making it so complicated actually becomes the tool to continue it because we don't have the ability to keep it in a concept in our mind that we can understand day-to-day how we live. But we absolutely live it. So, um, yeah, I think it's really powerful to be able to use various communication tools, but I love writing in particular, to break it down and make it accessible so that you just bring it to light. All the things, all the oppressions that we experience, to be able to speak them, see them, and say that's nonsense and want to change it. 
how do you institutionalize it? Because I think what's interesting about your perspective, which I didn't know before, is that you're writing at a level where maybe it can be institutionalized. Is that mm -hmm. fair to say? Yes. Or, yeah. So how do you how do you chip away at that? Well, I think um, you know that's the million dollar question. Yeah. I think one of the things that uh, people have talked a lot about, uh, to your point, is that we are looking at more women in leadership positions or more gender diverse people in leadership positions because there are more CEOs named John than there are women. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's interesting. Huh? So um, that would be one layer of yeah. change that's really, really yeah. important. we got to get rid of the, some of the Johns yeah. and, and put in other people who yeah. might have different names. Um, the other issue as well, too, though, is looking at policy and practice on the company level. I think that's very important when you're looking at it in terms of workplaces, that workplaces have to prioritize these things. Um, they have to look at their systems, their practices, their policies, things like who's getting paid what. They have to open up the confidential files and look at those pieces and see where are the biases playing out in the same kind of usual suspect ways and how can we flip that with our power i think that's really important for leaders in particular in companies to be doing um taking up that responsibility because they have a say in the way things work of course. but of course it's got to be even deeper than that it's got to be policies and practices at a governmental level as well because the incentive to open up all those black boxes is really not going to be there on the company level alone they have shareholders that they're accountable to depending on the kind of company and how it's set up. So I think there's a lot of disincentives to doing the right thing. And you can't blame it on an individual as well. You can't say that leader's a bad leader or those leaders are evil leaders. That's not really the thing. Um, so you have to make it kind of an institutional policy that comes from the government. And it's really top down and bottom up at the same time. Doors opening. Going up. Fourth floor. There's no better way to close this show than to tap into the mind and perspective of an actual HR professional who understands the cost of institutional sexism. My next guest is Darcy Taylor. My full name is Darcy Lynn Taylor. My maiden name is Laverty. Uh, my profession has been in human resources. I do, uh, in the past, was for, was really kind of doing more human resources in corporate settings. Uh, and I got into coaching um, probably about five years ago now and started to uh, really amp that side of my, I guess, my professional background up because I felt there was uh, something really intrinsic about coaching that spoke to me. Mm -hmm. And creating a deeper connection with people uh, that I felt like I couldn't always get from an HR standpoint. Sometimes when you're just in human resources, there's an innate conflict of interest between you, the organization, and sometimes the person who you're representing on behalf of, um, you know, in terms of their own needs as well as the employer's needs. But coaching um, really is very true to being there in the moment with the person who you're coaching. And I really, that um, piece really spoke to me. I loved working with individuals that were looking to evolve and change and were looking for some ideas and some um, opportunities to do so, but really understanding, realized that it was actually always within them to do that. Um, so seeing somebody evolve was always such a beautiful opportunity. And I felt so fortunate to be able to have 
that as part of my um, professional landscape of things I could focus on. I wanted to talk to you really about the glass ceiling and this concept of glass cliffs. So I'll start on the glass ceiling. Um, maybe you can give me from your perspective what... Um, it, there's no question a glass ceiling exists, mm-hmm. but maybe the question, the better question is, as a society, North American society, are we further along today than we were, let's say, a decade ago? And part of the reason I ask that is mm-hmm. because of elections down in the States, and it feels like it feels like there's almost like a regression, but I like I don't know. What what are your thoughts on on that? I think that there is a greater awareness around um, that there that we need to do more around women in leadership, and that um, that there needs to be greater opportunity created around those conversations. I also think that uh, we haven't evolved from a workplace societal standpoint that we've been able to manage how holistically we can encourage both men and women to have a career and also feel like they can meet the needs that they need to do from a familial standpoint. Mm -hmm. So, and I think what ends up happening is that this whole glass ceiling still exists to the degree it does because um, we're so traditional still in the way that we work. Okay. And, um, you mean in terms of assigning roles? Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and I think that what ends up happening is still to this day, uh, women take more responsibility when it comes to, uh, for the most part, the majority of women um, mm-hmm. who have family. Um, although responsibility is more shared. I would say that the investment of thinking and time and organizing still, for whatever reason, still seems to be um, placed a lot more on the female person in the family. And, um, and that can't help but have an impact on, on someone's ability to do, to be able to focus their time and energy on other things, um, specifically around the profession or their own self-care or their own right. personal needs at times. Um, and so, what I think that ends up happening is biases get created as a result. Yeah. And so I think that this idea of a bot and it happens all the time and it's sometimes so um, it's not even on purpose that someone has created it, it is looking or viewing at something through a bias lens, yeah. but it happens in the most subtle ways that continues to impact that ceiling. Yeah. That's a that's a great point. Um, I, I'm curious to, to your thoughts on, you know, uh, there's a whole reason, there are a whole lot of reasons why that is. But do you think women are selfish enough? And I'll I'll explain to you why I'm asking that. Is case in point, um, you know, my wife goes away for a work trip, and uh, I take care of my daughter, and my daughter's got um, kinky hair because we're a mixed family, and um, I. Uh, Let's just say people knew when my wife was out of town because my daughter's hair wasn't as well kept. Um, Interesting. <laughs> yeah, they, they were all like, oh, okay, so your wife's out of town. I'm like, yeah, how do you know? It's like, oh, the kids just aren't as, as, as well kept, I guess, the hair. Yes. But the hair was a, was a big part of that as a signal, I guess. I didn't care. 
Mm, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, I like I didn't care. I, I actually think it's kind of funny. I'm like, oh, yeah, they know because the hair isn't perfect. I did my best at it, but yeah. I, didn't, I didn't break my back. Over yes. It. And does it really matter in and the does end? does it really matter Yeah. And I'm like, I don't care, whatever. Mm-hmm. Not to say my daughter went to school, like, disheveled, but anyhow. Mm-hmm. But somehow, like, there's a judgment on the woman, right? Right. Um, and where it relates to work is because I'm like, you got to go to work. Like, you've, you've got, you got to focus on other things than the kid's hair. Like, it's okay. Mm-hmm. She's three or four yep. or whatever. But, like, I'm, is that, is that a... It's a, it's a like, long... where does that come from? Yeah. Do you know I, what I mean? Because I don't care. But it... It's such a, it, it's such a long-standing, traditional woven into the fabric of society Mm -hmm. around these expectations that they're hard to shift and it takes a long long time to shift people's perspective around okay if a if if a child looks disheveled it's really interesting that often it's like well mom right that that's where the gaze go it goes there and so um and so then i think then that's why then we you know, um, a woman might take that more personally in terms of how they decide to allocate their time and their energy. And so, and I think that these, those, that's, you know, a small example, but of a larger issue that ends up happening is that, so therefore there's always going to be, not always, but it's slow to change this whole idea of a bias yeah. around. So why do we put, why do we have that? Why does the gaze go there? Mm-hmm. You know, um, so I think it's not always. I think it, there is there are changing dynamics that, ha- that are happening in relationships very much now. But in terms of that's how it's shifting at, on the home front, it hasn't fully migrated the way uh, at the same pace in the work front. Okay, okay, that's good. To, okay, can you expand on that? Like, where where hasn't that changed on the work front? Or give me an example of that. Where you see it the most in terms of in professional arenas is is really at the senior level. Okay. So when you see, um, you know, you're sitting at the boardroom around the boardroom table and you look at all of the senior executives around that table, you're going to see a very different percentage of of men versus women than what you did at the entry level positions. So maybe in an organization, there might be. Uh, progress in terms of uh, of equality in the numbers of when men and women, but when you get to that that suite of power, so to speak, mm-hmm. there's an imbalance. That's right. Okay. Um, and that's where I would say the glass ceiling exists is, is certainly at those more senior level executive positions. Um, you know, it was always really interesting to me. I I, I started my HR career in the legal profession, and um, seeing Arctic students come in, it was always a fifty fifty between men and women coming in to the law firm. Entry level. Entry level. Mm-hmm. Um, Arctic students and then associates. And then something different happened at the partnership level. And so when you saw the the, the number of women at part, as partners versus men as partners, there was a really big difference there. And it's something that um, there's a, you know, there is a mandate amongst, um, you know, law firms and certainly in Toronto and around the world that, look at that in terms of what can we do differently to help encourage more women to take on to to take on those responsibilities those responsibilities and truly the only way that that can happen is we have to look at the way we work and so unless we're willing to evolve the way we work Mm -hmm. then it's going to be very difficult for that to shift as quickly as we want it to because of these other responsibilities or these other 
pressures that, pressures are, that, that happen are outside outside of work. I actually think it has to, in order for us to move this pegboard, I actually think it needs to happen at a at a totally different level. And I oh. think it starts actually at school age. And um, I'm going to maybe back up and say, say um, you know, a lot of stats show that when women get promoted, unless they have every box checked, they're not getting that job. Whereas a lot of times men got, get promoted because of their potential. Right, right. Yeah, potential versus uh, um, success or whatever. Right. Record. That's right. And so, but I would say that it's not only men who make that judgment. It's also women making that judgment on other women. And so... Um, so it's societal. It's societal. It's happening. It, it, and I think it's also that sometimes as women, we don't go after things until we have all those boxes checked. So we also are holding ourselves back. Instead of some time, instead of taking the risk, and I say that because, and the reason why I say I think it has to happen much earlier is I think we have to give our girls permission at a much younger age to take risks. So the class club is interesting to me because it suggests that we're willing to sabotage um, someone, yeah. Um, yeah. and um, and I feel like we're progressing away from that because I think nowadays it's too, that's risky in its own right for a company to put someone in that situation where, um, where you might've might be viewed to have purposely done, have done that. Right, right. But I think that also there's companies that are shifting and changing. And now I think what's happening is you see a lot of women entrepreneurs coming in and starting it their way yeah. right from the get go and they're at the helm and they're making things happen. So the idea of these traditional businesses, I also think are changing. Mm-hmm. So I think the shift that could ha- that will happen for women is um, I feel that we're, we're, we're changing the way that we work in the sense of we're moving away from very traditional, like the GMs and like these big blue chips. And now when you see, you know, the companies that are, are progressing at such an exponential rate, there are these companies that are, um, you know, that are evolving with technology and they're looking at different way at, at different ways of working and they're not necessarily um, you know service based but they have a different business model um, and and I think that there are more entrepreneurial women who are entering into that space yeah. that will lead themselves forward right based on their own rules right and um, so they'll they'll effectively change the game they're changing the game. ago I was watching this TED talk and I wish I could remember it was about coding and kids doing coding at in oh, school. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Very, very young. Yeah. And it was around how we are how do we increase um, how do we get more girls into coding? And they did this kind of exercise in the schools where they had these kids coding and you know they were walking around the classroom and trying and looking at the kids at kids their work and so what they start to notice was this trend where a lot of the, uh, many girls would have blank screens whereas the boys had all sorts of stuff on their screens yeah. and so they're like well that's strange what's up with that and what they realize is that if they press the undo button 
they noticed that the girls would have done a bunch of work, but then they would erase it because it wasn't perfect. So if they did the undo, the undo, the undo, they'd see all the work and all the stuff that they had done, and but they erased it because they didn't think it was right. Wow, that's incredible. Incredible. And so it's starting at such a young age. And so, you know, that's why I feel like we have to get, from a societal standpoint, we have to address this much, much earlier. We're getting to it. We're getting at it too late. It's through our failures that we get our deepest and most our richest learnings. And it's how we develop this ability to take risks and this ability to put ourselves out there because we're not going to be afraid of that failure. Uh, gender equality is important because... The, because gender is no longer about gender anymore. Gender's changing, even from he, she, he, they. So there you have it. The conversation continues. I'd like to thank everyone who's participated in today's show. Be they behind the scenes or on the mic. Part of our show was recorded and produced at Corner Studios with the assistance of our producer, John Kitt. Music for this episode was composed, played, and enjoyed with permission by Joachim Nortebert and Andy Ninval. If you like what you've heard, there's more. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter under our handle, Crowd54. Remember, you can find us wherever you do your listening. iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and that's just a few of them. Listen, like, share. Until we meet again. Thanks for listening. <laughs>